Good morning uh, and welcome to Church at Home. My name is Simon Clegg and I'm the pastor of St Barnabas Bible Church here in Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, If you're new to us, we're delighted that you're joining us and we do hope that our Bible talk this morning will be a blessing and an encouragement to you even as you continue in fellowship with a local church. If you're not attending a local church and want to know more about us, do please visit our website www.sbbc.org.za and if you'd like one of the team to contact you, won't you please leave your details on the home page. But now as we begin this morning, can I invite you to open your Bible to the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament to chapter 1 and I'm going to read from verse 14. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew, casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and followed him. Well, just so far... Uh, Let's pray and ask for God's help as we study his word together. Our gracious God, we thank you for giving us a clear and a living word. We pray that you would help us according to our needs this morning, that you would remove the barriers that prevent us from hearing, from trusting, from obeying. And we ask that your word to us this morning would do us good and cause us to honour you and we ask it in Christ's name Amen Well this is our third Sunday in the New Testament book called Mark Two weeks ago we looked at the preparation for the coming of Jesus and the work of John the Baptist and last week we looked at the very spectacular events surrounding the baptism of Jesus and now this morning we come to the little section from verses 14 to 20, just seven verses. And we're looking at Jesus' first words and Jesus' first disciples. Now it's fascinating to me how some words wash over us and make no impact on us whatsoever, while other words are utterly gripping and effective. And uh, it seems to me that there's something in all of us that hungers for words that are gripping and effective. And especially in those times, like the times we're living at at the moment, when there is a great crisis facing us. Uh, The movie, The King's Speech, makes the point rather well. Uh, If you've seen it, you'll know that it's the true story of King George VI, who suddenly finds himself on the throne. Uh, The world is on the brink of war and people are in desperate need of a leader to guide them through the crisis. 
The problem is that the king suffers from a, a terrible speech impediment. He can barely string a sentence together. His words make absolutely no impact on anybody. So his wife arranges for him to meet a rather eccentric speech therapist and eventually the king is cured and against all expectations uh, he delivers the most marvellous speech that grips the whole nation. His words are suddenly powerful and effective and uh, the, the nation comes together for the struggle against Nazi Germany. Now that I think helps us to grasp what Mark wants us to understand this morning. Because whilst the words of King George were able to change the hearts and minds of the people, they could only do that for a short period. By contrast, the words of King Jesus change people forever. So this morning we're looking at the first words spoken by Jesus and it's my prayer that his words will make a deep impact on us and not simply wash over us. So we're going to divide up our little section into three points. Uh, first of all, that Jesus announces himself. He says the kingdom has come. Uh, and he might as, as well have said, I've come. Second, he tells us what to do. He says, repent and believe. And third, he obviously says this with tremendous effect because some men who are involved in a perfectly good job leave everything and start to follow. So let's think about these three things together. They're very well-known verses. Uh, some of you will have read them maybe hundreds of times. But it's my prayer that by the grace of God this morning they'll come to us today with fresh power. So firstly, Jesus announces himself. Verses 14 and 15. Uh, we read there that Jesus began to preach after John the Baptist was put in prison. And you notice how casually Mark says that. I mean, imagine I started this morning by saying, uh, well, I'm doing everything this week because the rest of the ministry team have been put in jail. You'd be shocked. You'd want an explanation. And it's only when we get to chapter 6 that we discover that John has been put in prison by Herod for speaking the truth and eventually Herod will have uh, John the Baptist beheaded John will become the first of more than 70 million people <coughs> who've been martyred for being followers of Jesus Christ so interestingly in verse 14 uh, when Mark says that John was put in prison uh, the word in the original is that he was handed over now that's a terribly important word in the Gospels because later on Jesus says I'm going to be handed over and then Jesus says to his followers you're going to be handed over and of course Jesus is handed over to crucifixion. So when Mark says quite casually John's in prison Jesus starts to preach. He's making the point I think that the context in which the Gospel spreads and grows is not one of ease and comfort. It's one of suffering and opposition. Uh, that's the way it's always been. It's the way it is today. It's normal. Did uh, John the Baptist and Jesus ever work together? Well, the evidence from the New Testament is that John saw Jesus get baptised 
But as far as we know, uh, he never heard him preach. And apart from the extraordinary events of the baptism, he probably never saw a miracle. And therefore, John the Baptist is a very remarkable man. Because at the age of about 30, having done his job over a period of just a few weeks, maybe a few months, he gets arrested and put in prison. He never gets to hear uh, Jesus preach. He never gets to see a miracle. So he has to put his confidence 100% in the word of God, nothing else. And then his life is cut short, as I say, at the age of about 30. And here uh, we're told that John is in jail, soon to be beheaded. And Jesus goes into Galilee preaching the good news or the gospel of God. Now back in the Old Testament it said how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news and here is Jesus bringing the good news of God. Isaiah 61 speaks about the servant who says the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news. And here the Spirit has come upon Jesus and he begins to preach the good news of God. Now what is this good news? I mean it's one thing isn't it to stand up and say the kingdom is here, believe the good news. But anybody listening would be thinking well okay but what is it? Well in verse 15 Jesus says that the good news is that the kingdom is literally on your doorstep the time has come says Jesus meaning all the waiting is over all those Old Testament predictions that said a Messiah would come were correct because he has come the kingdom is now that we might say it's in your face you're looking at the kingdom and uh, the clue that tells us what Jesus means is the little word near in verse 15 because when Jesus says the kingdom is near he's not saying it's, it's coming any day now maybe next week, maybe next month the word near means up close or beside you or physically near you now at the moment social distancing means that I can't come near you and you can't come near me uh, the experts say that would be a bad thing. But Jesus says that with his arrival, the kingdom has come near, it's physically close, it's near, and that is a very good thing indeed. And if Jesus has come near, then the kingdom has come near. And if he announces the kingdom of God is near, what he's actually saying is, I am the king. Now, perhaps the most highly respected commentator on Mark's gospel is Professor Cranfield and he says the kingdom of God is Jesus and Jesus is the kingdom. That of course means if you want to be in the kingdom you have to do business with the king. Uh, to put this another way imagine two separate circles. Uh, one is the world and the other is the kingdom of God and as soon as Jesus comes into the world the kingdom as it were intersects 
with the world. I suppose a maths teacher would call it a Venn diagram. Uh, I'm hopeless at maths, so don't please ask me about Venn diagrams. But imagine that one circle is the world, one circle is the kingdom of God, Jesus arrives and the kingdom intersects with the world. And therefore, when you put your faith in Jesus, you are in that little intersection. So that you're both in the world and in the kingdom at the same time. You're very much in the world, yes, you're a normal person, but you've also put your faith in the king and therefore you belong in that overlap or that intersection. Of course, if you've not yet put your faith in the king, you're not in the kingdom. You're in the world. And I'm going to ask you to put that right today. Because, you see, the kingdom is not so much a place that you could board an aeroplane and fly to. The kingdom is a person you respond to. And in a moment we'll see that you respond by repenting and believing. So when Jesus says elsewhere the kingdom is among you, he did not mean that the kingdom is inside you. No, he meant that the kingdom is standing right in front of you. It's me. Now, of course, if you were to announce these things through a megaphone or go into a shopping mall, and you called out in a loud voice, the kingdom has come, it's me, well, you would need to back it up. Otherwise, you'd probably get arrested. No one would take you seriously. It's so easy to say, but how do you show it? And so what we're going to see as we work our way through Mark's Gospel is that again and again and again, Jesus will show what the kingdom looks like and prove that he is the king. And his kingdom is marked by kindness and authority and compassion and making people well and showing that there is someone who controls everything and who loves everyone and who wants the very best for everybody. You see, the kingdom that Jesus brings is marked above all by authority and love. Now, I realise that I've laboured this first point, but I've done it deliberately because it's so important. When Jesus announces the kingdom, he announces himself. Now, secondly, if he is the king, well, surely the obvious question is, what does he want us to do? Uh, Do we just say, oh great, the kingdom's come, I do hope very much one day I'll get into it? No. And this is our second point. Jesus tells us to repent and believe. And you'll find that in verse 15. You see, we're not meant to pull our socks up and try harder. We're not meant to just say a little prayer occasionally when we remember to do so. We're not meant to think about God on Sundays and forget about him the rest of the week. The way we respond to the king is by taking his authority seriously now I'm sure most of you know this but whenever good authority comes it always leaves its mark of course there are plenty of bad authorities Uh, many countries around the world today 
have bad authorities and they're suffering terribly for it but good authority always changes people's lives for the better the Southern Baptist Seminary was founded in the 1840s it made a very very good beginning but uh, it soon fell into what was called progressive theology and uh, progressive theology is actually just a polite way of saying progressing out of the Bible and uh, for a hundred years it was liberal it was proud it was spiritually dead they lost the gospel but then in 1993 they appointed a new president uh, a man called Al Mola he was just 33 years old at the time and looked about 10 years younger than that but he rose to the challenge and he recovered the original charter of the college he showed it to the liberal professors on the faculty and he told them to sign it or leave he said if you're going to be a lecturer here sign it or leave if you want to be a student here sign it or leave by the time he finished there were just four people left on the faculty the students were protesting carrying coffins around the campus saying you're killing the college but Al Mola stuck to his guns and he, he always put the gospel first as a result the college has grown from under a hundred students to more than two thousand with a, a growing and expanding faculty entirely united round the gospel now that is good authoritative leadership now good leadership needs to be loving leadership leadership that cares for the people leadership that's interested in the people and that is the authority we see perfectly in Jesus Christ and the response that he's looking for from you and me is terribly simple but even as I say that you'll either get this or you won't Jesus says I want people to repent and to believe now you may say well that's basic everybody knows it but you know I've seen lots of people in Christian circles who intellectually believe things but who've never repented and equally there are some sad people who are always repenting but never believing but you see when you repent and believe you move into the kingdom you move in immediately and one day you'll move in ultimately but if you don't repent and believe you'll never move in so you'll notice then that the message of Christianity is not just good news it's first of all change your direction repent then good news uh, J.C. Ryle was the first Bishop of Liverpool and a highly respected leader of a previous generation and uh, in his writings on Mark's Gospel he says we may reach the kingdom and never have riches or greatness or even health but we shall never reach the, the kingdom of Christ if we die unrepentant and unbelieving no, a new heart and a lively faith in the Redeemer are absolutely essential so what then does repentance mean? I do think we need to be clear about this you see it's not something that a few preachers call out angrily from the pulpit on Sunday morning 
it's actually a wonderful thing to tell people it's basically saying drop the things that are going to kill your soul that are going to kill you spiritually so repentance means that you give up anything and anyone who keeps you from Jesus Christ if there's someone or something who would keep you from coming to faith in Jesus that person or that something is incredibly dangerous in the end it will destroy you so repentance means that you come to your senses and you say I've got to make a break with this uh, if I'm to take hold of Christ with two hands I must make a break it may be that you need to make a break with your big personal goal which might be to be in charge of yourself my friend that will kill you it may be the pride that whispers in your ear I'm much too big for all this that will kill you it may be a relationship which is wrong and is going to prevent you from ever trusting in Christ it's got to go it might be a policy decision that you made privately years ago when you said to yourself I'm never going to be interested in Christianity it might be a lifestyle I come first it's all I care about it can be a habit it can be a possession it can be an attitude whatever it is that keeps you from Christ it's got to go and repentance can I say is both a God-given ability and a human responsibility so you cannot repent unless God enables you to do it but if he does you've got to do it that's repentance now what about believing well believing does not mean simply ticking a mental box it means that you take seriously everything that God has said and done and then you act on it so believing is not a leap in the dark a friend of ours has often said the only thing you get with a leap in the dark is a broken ankle but Jesus took very great care in his ministry to say things and then prove things in order to give us hard evidence for believing he said I'm the resurrection to prove it I'll bring Lazarus out of the grave I'm the bread of life to prove it I'll feed a crowd I'm the light of the world to prove it I'll heal a blind man so throughout his ministry it was always promise proof promise proof now friends as I look back over my life far and away the most intelligent people I've known are Christians they're not gullible they're not weak-minded people who will believe anything you tell them no in every area of life they weigh up the evidence carefully before they make a decision and that I think is a reminder that becoming a Christian is a sensible thing to do it's a wise decision that doesn't mean that you need to be brilliantly clever to become a Christian although of course you do need to be humble now I wonder what Jesus expected people to believe in Mark's Gospel chapter 1 given the fact that at this stage in the story he's done no miracles 
he's preached no sermons, he's not yet lived a perfect life, not yet died on the cross, not yet risen from the grave. So when he says, believe the good news, what exactly did he expect people to believe? Well, I assume that what he's saying to them is believe what's in front of you. Believe in me. And then as time proceeds, he does live his life and preaches sermons, performs miracles, dies on the cross to show his love, and then rises again. And all the evidence piles up so that he can say to you and me this morning, I've given you all the evidence that you will ever need to put your trust in me. And today, of course, with all of our Christian books and our DVDs and our MP3s and all the vast online resources, we have more than enough information to find out about Jesus and take a place in his kingdom. So I hope you can see that believe is not the same thing as agree. No, believe means you decide. So, for example, uh, if you believe your plane is leaving in two hours, you hurry and you get it. In the same way, if you believe that Jesus is mighty and merciful to save, you hurry to him and you speak to him and you give yourself to him and you drop anything that would stop you from doing that. So, Jesus tells us exactly what to do in order to enter the kingdom. Nobody listening to this talk this morning needs to be in despair about their situation regarding the kingdom. Please don't say to yourself, I think that to get into the kingdom, you've got to be really wonderful, uh, brilliant, successful, godly, consistent. No, no, no. You drop what would keep you from coming to Christ and you go to him and you take hold of him and he will immediately embrace you in the kingdom. That, that actually is the gospel. That's the good news. Well now, in the last little section, in verses 16 to 20, Jesus says, follow me. And he says that with very great power. And we know that because when he calls these fishermen, they respond. Uh, Jesus speaks and Simon and Andrew and James and John, they leave their nets and they leave their family business. And I think when you first read these verses, you say to yourself, well, what on earth's going on here? Why would these perfectly normal people, having heard somebody say for one second, come and follow me, I mean, why would they make a decision as huge as that? Well, we know from the rest of the New Testament that there was more going on behind the scenes. Because these men, you see, had already spent some time with Jesus. He wasn't a stranger to them. They'd already been able to ask their questions. But now comes the crunch. And Mark, you see, is only recording for us the crunch moment, which is the call to come. And they do come. Uh, does that mean that they left all their property, their nets, their, their boats, their houses, their wives, their children and set out leaving all that behind? No, not necessarily. Uh, the rest of the New Testament tells us with plenty of evidence 
that these disciples still had their boats and their families and their wives and so on right the way up to the end. Uh, So, for example, later if you look at the last chapter of John's book, we're told there that they went fishing, so quite obviously they still had their boats and their nets. Now, the idea, I think, that Mark wants us to get hold of is that all of these other things, uh, property, boats, families, houses, whatever else, all those things immediately took second place to Jesus Christ. You see, it would be quite wrong, I think, to say that Christ caused Christians to neglect all their other responsibilities before they met him. There's no evidence for that whatsoever. But what Jesus Christ does say is, I must have first place in your life. And I think you see that Mark records the call of these first disciples because, well, in the first place, it shows us what incredible authority Jesus has. I mean, who else do you know who could get four men to make a life-changing decision like this? I know I can't. I don't think you could. I can't actually get anybody to follow Jesus Christ. I can tell people about him. I can urge them to follow him. And if you're not doing that, I am encouraging you to do that this morning. But in the end, it's only Jesus who can get people to take him seriously. And it's his word It's his voice, it's his message which goes into the mind and into the heart and totally transforms the person. Now that, you see, is what we're being shown here. Jesus stands up and says, the kingdom's here. Repent and believe the good news. And we say, well, is anybody actually going to take any notice of that? But Jesus says, come. And four men immediately begin to follow Now that's the kind of authority Jesus has because he is the king of kings. And all of a sudden these four men you see they've got new leadership, they've got new direction, new values, new goals, new privileges, new opportunities and new responsibilities. They've been totally transformed. And that you see is what happens when people take Jesus at his word then the second thing we notice here is that when Jesus tells them to come and fish for people I think we're getting a little window into how Jesus changes people Uh, I know that many people today think that if you take Jesus seriously that that's going to be the end of your usefulness the end of your life, the end of your fun actually the New Testament says the opposite Uh, It's the thief who comes to kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full now. So, he says to these fishermen, uh, fishing is great. Uh, I like fishing. It's an excellent business. And uh, around the Sea of Galilee, it's a terrifically big business. But he says, you're going to do something immeasurably more wonderful. I'm going to help you fish for people who are drowning in their sin and show you how to bring them onto the solid rock of new life. So this is the little window that shows us that Jesus has authority and he also has a tremendous love for people. You know, somebody has said 
people outside the church are not bored with Christianity. They don't understand Christianity. But the danger is that people inside the church will get bored with Christianity because we allow our minds to move away from the fact that Jesus has said something to these men which is so interesting, so wonderful, so fresh that we forget how interesting and wonderful Jesus is. And the result of that is that people outside the church don't hear what they desperately do need to hear. So here's Jesus uh, calling these men to a new life which of course he's going to give them because in due course he's going to die for them and they're totally transformed. By the way, they didn't all have the same experience. James had a rather short ministry. John had a very long ministry. Simon Peter had a famous ministry. Andrew had, a, frankly, an unknown ministry. But they were all wonderfully changed and greatly used by God. And so as I think of this as a Christian this morning, I'm asking God to help me see the person of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark as very great, very wonderful, very merciful, and not to be tricked into drifting away from him, but to be devoted to him and to be available to him and to join in the wonderful work of fishing for other people. This week, uh, I heard about a man who's serving in Operation Mobilization. Uh, some of you may know that Operation Mobilization is a, a Christian mission agency. This man used to be an Afghani Muslim insurgent rocket commander. One day his jeep was bombed. In hospital he was converted. And uh, after he was discharged, he, he started preaching Christ. But of course it wasn't long before he started to be persecuted so he fled to Pakistan once again he preached Christ he planted a little church and then the persecution began all over again so he fled to Australia where today he serves in Operation Mobilization helping other people to take Jesus seriously now think about that an Afghani Muslim insurgent rocket commander is now proclaiming the gospel who on earth could do that well only Jesus Christ and that's what we see in our passage this morning let's pray Father we do thank you for showing us in these verses something of the majesty of Christ we thank you for the wonderful kingdom that he's brought into the world and for the way that he's opened it up through his death. We thank you also for the invitation to repent and believe and we pray for all who might hear this that you would give them the ability to repent and to believe. And we thank you for the invitation to be your fellow workers in the world and pray that you would help us to play a useful part in bringing men and women to Jesus. 
and we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.